All right, everybody, let's, let's get rolling here. So today I'd like to welcome Dr. Ken Wood. Uh, he'll be talking on the quality cost interface in the era of healthcare reform. Just to give you a little bit of background, Dr. Wood uh, did his critical care fellowship at Cooper in, in New Jersey, uh, followed it up with um, a faculty appointment at University of Wisconsin where he was for almost 20 years. He uh, was a director of critical care during his time there. He was a medical director of the EICU. Um, he was the director of the Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship for uh, from uh, up until about 10 years ago um, as well. In 2009, he started at Geisinger um, Medical Center. He was the director of critical care there. He's a CMO there and uh, the director of the two-year critical care fellowship as well. Um, we we're lucky enough to recruit him here recently. Um, he's the associate CMO and, and uh, came on. Here's uh, the director of the Maryland Critical Care Network, and he has the huge and, and important uh, and necessary job of, of trying to uh, more fully integrating the critical care network and the services provided in, in, within our system. Um, he has uh, numerous awards, numerous publications that would be, take too long for me to get into, um, but his uh, areas of interest primarily are, have been in organ procurement, venous thromboembolism, and uh, exactly what he's talking about now is the integration of health systems and as it pertains to critical care. So it is a, an absolute pleasure having you here in Baltimore, and uh, uh, we'll be hearing hopefully a, a decent amount from him from an educational standpoint over the course of the year. So thanks, Dr. Wood. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate that. I try not to let anybody know I'm from New Jersey, so I, I hope you'll take me seriously even though I'm from New Jersey. Um, and I, I guess I, I'd start with another disclaimer probably. If as a PG32 now, I think if anybody had ever told me that I'd be talking about operational administrative components, healthcare reform, and the role of critical care, I, I would have been as dismissive as one could get. And I think like many of us that go into critical care, a lot of us go into critical care because we're attracted to the systemness the actual interrelationship between multiple, sometimes competing organ dysfunctions that occur. And certainly, we don't go into the room one day and say, well, <clears throat> let's actually fluid restrict, restrict, trash the kidneys to save the lungs, and come back the next day and say, well, you know, we ought to be a little more liberal with our fluid threshold, and if we have to increase the mean airway pressure, why so be it. I think we don't do that. We adjudicate a lot of competing interests, so I think there's a natural tendency for intensivists who are, tend to be system-oriented thinkers to evolve into administrative roles. And what I'm going to present to you today really is a 30,000-foot view that I think is profoundly important because it's absolutely of paramount importance from my perspective that <clears throat> physicians are not only keyed into the evolutionary changes that are more revolutionary today for healthcare reform, but to be a part of that. Because if physicians choose not to be a part of it, then what will happen to us and our patients particularly won't be under the control of the operative principle, perhaps, what's in the best interest of the patients. That we need to be very engaged, very involved, and have an implicit understanding of the venues into which many of you are in training will go into practice, but for those in the existing architecture and uh, critical care, whether it be here or elsewhere, to really have a fundamental understanding of what's happening and what's transpiring. So this really will be a 30,000-foot view. I'd be delighted to come back and put together a more nuanced discussion, which I, I've done in the past, related to the specifics of critical care. But I think it's important to have a foundational overview of really where we are today. So. Um, as a way of uh, dis another disclaimer, um, well, maybe that doesn't work. Maybe just do this. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. Um, I, I'm on no speakers list. I receive no industry, no honorariums. Uh, my research is federally funded in systems engineering applications to medicine, as well as venous thromboembolic disease. So there are a lot of predicates for healthcare reform. 
not the, not the least of which was the inability to provide access for patients, and that was significant. And against that background, there were significant issues with the cost of care. And if we look at the absence of coverage for many patients who had no insurance, but healthcare became ostensibly unaffordable for many who actually were insured. And if you look at high deductibles and other plans, there were many, many issues that drove that. And certainly the cost of hospitals and technology drove this dramatically. So there were multiple recommendations, and as you can see here, the comprehensive care ought to be provided by large groups of practitioners, ostensibly organized around hospitals, much like ACOs, basic population health, public health services ought to be provided, and that the group payment model, whether it's through insurance or taxation, were to actually govern the availability, and there ought to be some allocation for fee-for-service, but a pretty substantial transition here. And then ultimately, state and local regulatory agencies would play a major role to study and evaluate, coordinate services, and that professional education be improved. So these are really the tenets of healthcare reform. So the question is, what, what do you think? Did this work? We don't have the audience uh, interview participation here, but I mean, Startling success, dismal failure, somewhere in the middle. Startling success, dismal failure. So what I would say, it was a colossal failure, an incomprehensible failure, because these are the recommendations made from the Committee on Cost in 1932. Almost 100 years ago, this process was convened. It began in the turn of the century when it was noted that many of the American population had no access to health care. Hospitals in the past were by and large repositories run by charities for patients to die because there was very little therapy that could be undertaken. And as a consequence of Bismarck's work in Europe and the social insurance, wage insurance, there was a whole movement championed by Teddy Roosevelt and the progressive movement to actually bring salary wage and health care insurance. That unfortunately <coughs> fell apart with the evolution of World War I, Frank, or um, Woodrow Wilson, and a series of other changes, but in 1920 it was resurrected by Calvin Coolidge, who charged the AMA to actually look at the costs of care because it was becoming unaffordable. The relative percentage of a family income, or particularly their health care expenses that were consumed by hospitalists, went from 8 or 9 percent up to 1929, probably almost 40 percent. So the expansion and growth in technology, hospitals, making health care unaffordable was almost as pervasive an issue in the 1920s as it was today, or it was recently that uh, prompted the U.S. to really embark on something beyond the balanced budget of 1997, but well into the Affordable Care Act. So those prerequisites were very similar in that era, and I guess one might argue that were we to have paid attention to that, we might not be left with slides like this. Yeah, sorry. That, in effect, looks at our per capita spending, which is at a robust $8,000 per person compared to an average in the other industrialized countries of somewhere around 3000 And yet our outcomes on multiple levels and multiple dimensions probably aren't a lot better. I mean, we could arguably say there's subtle differences, but in general, they tend not to be better. And that's resulted in a composite increase in our GMP, which will probably, from a trajectory standpoint, come close to approaching 20%. Transient diminution that we saw, probably because of the recession, a little bit of the ACA, a lot of things conspired together to decrease the percent growth in healthcare. But the recent projections would put us on a trajectory to a close price almost 20% of our economy will be in healthcare. And you can see that's really a, a dramatic departure. So we oftentimes see the quantitative component. This is Karen uh, Davis's work out of uh, Hopkins, published through the Commonwealth Fund, that specifically looks at the qualitative component. So if you look at these, they're very similar to the quality elements that were derived from the crossing the quality chasm. And you can see effective care, safe care. Again, qualitative, done by survey and feedback. But you can see that the U.S., in a sense, ranks stone cold last. 
So qualitative, qualitative indices, I think no matter what side of the political aisle one sits on, we could cogently argue that there are issues with our healthcare system that we need to address. So it's important, I think, in going forward, particularly how this relates to critical care, is to understand the global environment that the ACA has actually uh, promulgated. And there were essentially two major areas. These are well summarized by the editorial commentary by uh, Blumenthal in the New England Journal. I'd encourage everybody to take a look at the article that was handed out, because it's the best capsular summary of what's a process in evolution. First and foremost, it was to provide access, so the development of exchanges, the expansion of Medicaid, which is probably active now in 26 states, dramatically increased access to patients. There now is dependent coverage and pre-existing coverage. So all said in total, the coverage has by and large been expanded dramatically for many in the American population. You can see the percentage still remains high, but there probably has been some impact. The other major area of the ACA was to really focus upon the delivery model. And as this unfolded through government and particularly through CMS, the focus really is, is on changes in payment models. And as we look at the evolution, it's really migrating us away from the very traditional fee-for-service piecemeal approach that had within that context many, many perverse incentives, not necessarily to pay for value, but to pay for volume. So what we're seeing is really a dramatic transition away from fee-for-service, and Maryland's probably at the cutting edge of global budgeting, which doesn't exist anywhere else in the country. So the imperatives here are probably at the highest level. But one need only look at Secretary Burwell's commentary to get a pure sen pure sense of where this is going for the nation. So for those of you that finish and stay here, <clears throat> the future already exists. For those that are training and going to go elsewhere, the reality is there's an evolutionary process that I suspect will eventuate into something very similar to what exists in Maryland. Areas of focus, goals, and targets. So as you look and see alternative payment methods, and it changed the way care is delivered. Medicine's a contact sport. We contact patients every day. Uh, I would argue it's best played by teams, as this would suggest. And ultimately, as you're migrating to EPIC, information technology and the capacity to do predictive modeling, simulation, a whole series of things that the rest of American industry has done and done well have not been embraced by healthcare. And a lot of that has as its predicate data. So the goal is to have Medicare fee-for-service change to quality, profound departure from the previous high-volume, high-caseload reimbursement. And again, these targets are to take 30% of Medicare payments for quality or value through alternative payment methods. So this isn't fee-for-service anymore. This is actually paying for value, quality, and as we see the uh, approach that ACOs are using, and particularly bundled payments, Maryland is probably in the ultimate bundled payment in that hospitals have a global fee. So independent of how many cases are done, there's one set fee. Very much what you'd see in Canada or any other model of budgetary constraint, limiting, rationing if we don't do it effectively. So the key, as I think you'll see, is to really ratchet up the efficiency and eliminate waste within the system. So there are many incentives that have been put in place to decrease cost. There are incentives for readmissions, acquired conditions, and the paper value system. So back in the day of 2013 when this began, 2% of a hospital's operating budget would be allocated via these value-based purchasing programs. It's going to crescendo to 6%. So if you have a $2 billion revenue stream, and let's say Medicare constitutes in a regular hospital system half of that, you do the math on this, this is a significant chunk of change. This is an enormous amount of money that's at risk for hospitals. And four or five hospitals, based upon current assessment, will be penalized in one or more of these areas, meaning these are really not added revenue. These are withholds for the most part, that if you perform at a certain level, the money gets returned back in the form of your incentive, if you will. But in academic medical centers, one in three will be penalized in all areas. So this has enormous implications related to the mission of academic medical centers and the populations that they serve going forward. So in 2013, it looked a bit like this. 70% was process metrics, and about 30% was patient experience. 
Migrating forward, outcomes, what ultimately really matters, and you'll see there's an evolution towards that. Outcomes are important. Efficiency was added for this calendar year. So in the rest of the country, the capacity and efficiency is a surrogate for cost. So hospitals in Pennsylvania, New York, for the Medicare population will be evaluated based on their costs, based on the Medicare cost data, for four days before an admission and 30 days after. It's a surrogate for how efficient, effective these institutions are in spending the Medicare dollar. And you can see that's a 20% component. Outcomes are up around 30. Patient experience is pretty constant. Going forward, outcomes, and there's a whole plethora of outcomes that have been added to the characteristics, efficiency, again, cost of care for the Medicare population. So most hospitals, probably between 45 and 65 percent of their reimbursement is federal, Medicare and Medicaid. I mean, Maryland's a bit of a different, different animal, but when you go out into the real world, this is a major determinant of hospital finances. And as it will look in the very near future, you'll see efficiency at 25 percent. Outcomes, you see process. Process probably doesn't matter because a lot of people figured out how to actually check the box for process but didn't result in better outcomes. So you can see outcomes are a major part of this that are clinical, the patient experience stays the same, and so on. So if we look at just some of the issues that have arisen with this, with patient experience, and are you all familiar with Prescani and sort of what that means and how the impact in checking top boxes? Well, a lot of people have studied for the Prescani test. So if you have, let's say, 86% of people will check your top boxes and say that the hospital is really good, and then that all of a sudden goes from 86 to 88%. That could change your percentile from the 50th percentile to the 90th percentile. So there's incredible tight statistical clustering around the mean with any of these. So if we look at a 100-yard dash, 100-meter dash at the Olympics, somebody's the slowest. But the reality is the clustering at the finish line is so tight that the reality is, does this constitute a really valid way to say that we're actually taking care of patients well, or is patient experience really a derivative of doing things from quality or hospital and geographic areas that by and large are in a highly competitive environment? In Pennsylvania, when I left uh, as a PG-32, when I finished up, probably 4 to 7 percent of physicians were employed. That number today in Pennsylvania probably approaches well over 80, 85 percent. Philadelphia and Pennsylvania particularly will probably be an amalgam of five or six large hospital systems. And it's not indistinct from what's happening throughout the country. So ultimately, I think we'll probably see a fair amount of antitrust activity. Uh, there are a lot of reticence to do that today, but because we're not seeing costs come down, as you would expect with monopoly pricing, it creates a bit of a problem. So Maryland's a bit of an unusual bird here. Uh, I guess that could be crab maybe, a little bit of an unusual environment. And in the past, probably 40 years ago, there was negotiated settlement with CMS to look at the all-payer model. So in Maryland, the actual cost per case didn't go up, pretty static, because the all-payer model, whether it was insured patient, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, Medicare, and so on, all reimbursed the same. So the actual cost per case was less and the markup, the relative delta of, as you remember reading Brill's article in Time or Brill's new book about you know, the $1,300 aspirin and things like that, that didn't exist for hospital-based pricing here because it was fixed by the state. But five years ago, when they interrogated that data in great detail, what they found was that it wasn't necessarily the cost per case but the incremental volume. So if one got paid less and did more, that the actual costs in Maryland were high, were very high. So that was really the second phase of where you stand today in terms of the global budget. And so this limits the incremental revenue stream to hospitals just like this and others to inflationary correction of about state inflation, which is about 3.58%. So the budget for this year is the budget you was given last year. So you could do a thousand more cases and hopefully this will get adjudicated if that does occur or a thousand less cases but it's a budgetary model and it shifts almost all the revenue to alternative non-fee-for-service. So 
something to really be concerned about. Over time, the model's never really been effectively done in the U.S. And there's an additional commitment to keep the Medicare costs actually below the national per capita trend. So this is above and beyond the global fee. This is an added commitment that the state has made. And there's a series of things related to readmissions. Again, underscoring the data on that is pretty soft in terms of sociodemographics that weren't included in the actual projections. And it ties a lot of revenue to quality. So this really focuses the terminal part of this on <clears throat> Deming's principle that the best way to diminish costs is to improve quality. So critical care is something that's going to be in everybody's target for this because at a large center like this, the literature would suggest that probably at least 30% of the cost of this institution is in critical care. <coughs> staggering, staggering. If your costs are, say, $2 billion, you do the math on that, critical care consumes a phenomenal amount of resource. So you can imagine the extent to which inefficiencies or ineffectiveness or wastage that might occur in critical care in a capitated environment jeopardize the capacity to render care anyplace else because it's a fixed budget. There is no more revenue. So doing more cases doesn't generate any more revenue, doesn't support increase in jobs, technology. It becomes really about efficiency. And nationally, I mean, University of Maryland <coughs> is ostensibly an outlier. The percentage ICU beds, the acuity, this really being sort of the epicenter of critical care, the reality is the rest of the country will be moving. And as you look at outpatient therapy and folks who are in a hospital, the ICU as a percentage of the total beds will continue to actually get bigger. So we ought not mistake the extent to which critical care will be a bullseye for this. Uh, there's an overwhelming amount of literature about the cost of critical care, the incremental number of beds, and we'll talk a bit about whether demand elastins plays a role in that, whether we really need these beds. But critical care in a setting this large consumes an enormous amount of resource. It's proliferated, and I think as we look at what we do, uh, it will be under the microscope, both from end-of-life, advanced illness, um, <clears throat> patients who come to an ICU, the presence or absence of palliative care, looking at all your direct variable costs, ratcheting out the waste. And I think we can clearly say with absolute certainty that everyone will start to peer at critical care because it's an enormous cost in a capitated system. So I think many are probably familiar with Berwick's eight-year-ago paper on the triple aim in terms of care of populations the patient experience and per capita cost. I would argue that Lucian Leap's recent editorial commentary about the actual experience of the providers of care, meaning that that's a foundational element. If we don't actually take care of the people doing the care, A, we won't have people to do it, but the capacity to ensure adequate staffing, adequate nursing, resources to then render those elements of the triple aim are an absolute imperative in my mind to be able to ensure that we can meet the challenges coming forward. So this is Donna Bedian's classic description of quality as outcomes, structure, and function. I took the liberty of modulating that to say that outcomes really are a function of structure and process. And one of the driving, driving principles of systems engineering is to mitigate unwarranted variability and standardize. <clears throat> so one could argue that there's good room for warranted variability, and that's very true with tertiary disease cases for which there's no really evidence-based approach. But proven care, Six Sigma approaches, lean approaches, all these things are fundamentally related to mitigating unwarranted variation, creating reliability, and ensuring that the right care at the right place at the right time is done right the first time. And doing that allows us to eliminate waste. And the outcomes that we're charged with at every level will be both patient outcomes and then understanding what costs were accrued to provide those outcomes. So as I mentioned earlier, I think there's a lot of parallels for many who do critical care and evolve into administrative oversight because we deal with systems. So I think all are familiar, this really needs little explanation that we deliver oxygen in the form of flow and content. We tend to deliver more than what we need to achieve our tissue consumptive needs when we have an MI or we have a gunshot and bleed out. <clears throat> Decrements in oxygen delivery are met by a maintenance of tissue consumption via the capacity to engender 
an increased extraction ratio. Once we obviously hit the critical point, shock, cellular dysfunction, supply dependence, decrements in delivery met by decrements in consumption. So in an analogous way, we're charged with providing, just like cellular function, we're charged with providing outcomes. And one could pick a myriad of outcomes or patient safety outcomes and whatnot. But we do that with service delivery from people and resources. And I would argue, and I think the literature is unambiguous, that we probably provide far more in excess of what we need and live out here than to achieve the outcomes, to achieve those outcomes. And what the balanced budget of 97, what the ACA is telling us is that this is untenable. We have to migrate along this pathway and in an analogous way to that previously being the extraction ratio, outcomes over cost is value. Outcomes over cost. So the slope of this line becomes the value equation. And so if we have any pious hope that we're in effect going to continue at the same level of proficiency or inefficiency at that value statement and achieve better outcomes, sadly mistaken because it's resource prohibitive. Medicare's budget is budget neutral. So there will be no more money. The one absolute certainty, I think, excuse me, the one absolute certainty <clears throat> we can say about health care reform is there will be no more money. So this approach would be prohibitive. Eventually, we need to increase the value equation and migrate back to this area, take a more parsimonious approach in many ways. I would argue the answer isn't here. It's increasing the efficiency and re-engineering because ultimately this is where we would want to live. So the question is, is, is that a true statement? Is that valid? Is there data to suggest unlike the Dartmouth group who would argue that if you do geographic variation in cost with no better outcome, there's a phenomenal wastage of there. And it's a contentious discussion in the health services research literature to say that really exists or not. So what's clear is if you create a two-by-two two matrix looking at quality and costs, certainly where you don't want to be is high cost and low quality. So there are literature reports that's defined, and I think we're much clearer on the fact that you can spend a lot and have poor quality. Health services research has figured that out. What's really unclear is, is low cost and high quality, A, both feasible or inconsistent, and does higher costs mean higher quality? And this gets into the contentiousness, I, I think, that dominates some of the discussion. The weight of that literature, I think, uh, evident by the way I've tilted the scale here, suggests very strongly that the Dartmouth group and a series of others would suggest that one doesn't have to have high quality or high cost to accrue the benefits of high quality. There are health services research studies, though, that in, in Ontario, California, others that show if one spends more, the outcomes are better. A lot of that depends upon your baseline. Right? If you start with a very parsimonious approach and no resource expenditure, the reality is little increment might give you some benefit because you're below that supply-dependent curve. But having said that, I, I would argue, and I think the weight of the literature and clearly the regulatory weight suggests that the scale is tipped this way, that if we should not assume that higher costs will lead to higher quality, and that's not going to be a feasible thing to even think about. So this really gets to the squeeze-to-juice ratio. And so I would suggest that there are certain things that you can actually do with impunity, little effort because of the gross inefficiencies, things like the abolition of standing labs, having a palliative care team. And there's a myriad of things, you know, choosing widely, the BMJs, less is more. I mean, you could go on endlessly to suggest that there's a lot of places left where the squeeze to juice ratio, pretty good. You don't do much and you can actually eliminate a lot of waste. And administratively and operationally, the key is to really know the boundaries between this. Because in the high squeeze to juice ratio, you really get no bang for the buck. You waste a lot of time, effort, and money. And ultimately, you jeopardize patients. So I would argue the curve actually is a little bit more curvilinear and looks like this, that if you supply so much more, you do unnecessary testing, unnecessary CT, surgeries that aren't needed, I would argue that the outcomes and quality go down. And this is a low squeeze to juice ratio. This is standardization protocols, guidelines, 
choosing widely, wisely. There's a myriad of things that the literature is punctuated with that say we can move, again, deliver less. I would argue the answer is not here. The answer is efficiency in the resources and improve the outcomes. On the other hand, <clears throat> there are disease states where we may be at that point and a small decrement in service delivery, a really blunt, crude instrument to just whack nurses, right? Nurses are the biggest component of personnel. Personnel is the biggest fixed cost. Easiest way to fix the profit and loss statement is to just get rid of nurses. But I would argue that maybe that small decay drops your outcomes appreciably, creates an efficiency as an ultimately a much, much bigger cost. And that's, again, that delicate balance between a high squeeze to juice ratio and a low ratio. So ultimately, much like the Starling curve, it's a family of curves. As we look at what we're charged with doing, the goal continuously being increasing the value statement and migrating from here up to there. And that's ultimately the competitive edge for institutions, for destination medicine, for character of quality of patients and reimbursement. So these are have no particular weight, but if one were to invest, let's say we're in a community hospital of 500 beds that has an open ICU where there's no director, there's no multidisciplinary rounds, there's none of the efficiencies, well, that requires a bit of an investment because you have to pay for FTE time, you have to create a director, you have to put an IT system together, and ultimately you reap the benefits of that. As one looks at regionalization, again, incremental costs, but what you're anticipating is that you've got incremental benefit, and you put tel-ICU in, maybe a bigger cost than that, accrue benefit, and the question that we all need to think about is what's the next innovation? What's the level of creativity? What's the newness? And I would argue that the people best poised to do that are people who are actually closest to the process to push leadership responsibility down into the various areas for the people who do the work who inevitably know their work better than the people who don't do that. And really what we're talking about is re-engineering the care process to get us from here to here. And that's really a major challenge in many respects. And what that effectively is, <clears throat> is waste removal. And you can see the little sign here at the bottom of the waste removal truck. You can't really see it as well, but it says caution makes frequent stops and backs up. Because this is not a process that continues unimpeded just because we think about it. The reality is there are things that work, things that don't work. Any innovative system has to tolerate failure. Otherwise, nobody becomes innovative. So if eight out of 10 things work, there's two of them that won't work. You have to tolerate that. Sometimes it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission because you have to innovate and be creative routinely and consistently to be ahead of the curve and become more efficient. So that's really not the way it's looked at throughout the country in many respects. Many look at the world and the universe through the periscope of the profit and loss statement. So a P&L is what's used to evaluate how things are, revenue up here, expenses down here. And the reality is, I think anytime you look at something through a periscope, you do it at a shallow depth with a very narrow focus. And when you look at the P&L that way, what you see is diminishing revenue sources, bigger drop in expenses to then make up not only for the decrement, but very few organizations like to be static and not grow their margins so they can do new things, invest in new technology, hire new people. So if the revenue is decaying and the reality is the expenses are dropping further, what people see are expenses are personnel and supplies, right? Biggest part of expense in a hospital. I would argue it's actually probably how the care processes are rendered, but if you look at a P&L, it's personnel and supplies. And the easiest thing to do is to deplete your nursing corps. And so if there's one area of medicine where there's probably more literature that suggests support of the nursing corps is associated with better outcomes, lower costs, lower length of stay, decreased mortality, decreased falls, decreased infection, all the things embedded in value-based purchasing, as well as mortality being the surrogate for efficacy and length of stay being the surrogate for efficiency. And this is the classic paper that really set that in motion. This is Linda Aiken out of Penn's work in 2002, and you can see the dramatic changes. 
replicated again <clears throat> New England Journal. This went well beyond the nursing literature. This is well into the physician literature, and we ought to be keenly aware of that. So I would argue that as we look at increasing the value statement, we effectively do that in the context of re-engineering and eliminating waste. That's first and foremost. It's easy to lay people off, very easy, and happens around the country. So crudely, what, what are the, again, this is the 30,000 foot view. I'd be happy to come back and go into a much more nuanced discussion of the subtleties of the critical care components. But in general, if we look at structure and process in the ICU, what are the things that actually are the structural things and processes that can and should be in place? And not altogether applicable here, because this is a high-end, tertiary, quaternary, critical care-driven hospital that embraces, I believe, many of these. But lower mortality when there's a daily care plan, lower nursing ratios, not associated, interestingly, with a 24-hour in-house staffing. Certainly, whether every place is like Penn and nothing changes with in-house people, debatable. But closed ICU status didn't seem to have an enormous benefit. Similarly, multidisciplinary staffing with intensivists, best odds ratio for survivorship are high intensity and multidisciplinary. A little oxymoron when you talk about closed ICU. So the literature is not entirely clear, but again, these are areas of guidance for intensive care. We ought to ask ourselves, do we do evidence-based care? And I don't just mean doing the evidence-based for ARDS or evidence-based for tidal volume, but administrative evidence-based medicine. We ought to hold our feet accountable to what we do administratively and resource that so it similarly holds administrative feet to the fire just like it holds clinical feet to the fire. And administrative evidence-based medicine would be talks like this, administrative grand rounds to highlight the issues that are unfolding. <clears throat> there ought to be administrative journal clubs for people engaged in that activity. And there ought to be administrative M&Ms to look at initiatives that didn't go well. It should all be open, above board, and transparent with the goal, like any M&M, to take that information and improve the care processes. So these are all the things. Do, do we do all these routinely on our critical care rounds? And similarly, again, staffing is always a, a challenge based on acuity, but there's a whole series of things related recommendations. Again, not as applicable to here, where I think there's more of an intensivist concept, but as we look around the country, not always so. And Again, one of many, many studies <laughs> looking at the adequacy of nursing. And it's not just the numbers, it's the environment, the collaborative interface, and the capacity to function as multidisciplinary teams that defines that. So the physician workforce remains a bit of a question. This is limited data, and uh, interestingly, I guess they didn't survey the trauma critical care people. They, they might have been up here uh, beyond that, but critical care internal medicine with, with the reference being family medicine, you can see the incremental hours above and below what would be a family medicine norm. Um, this is thought to be a great inhibitor of the number of intensivists. So going back to Derek Angus's original work almost 15 years ago, we still operate on the presumption that there's a profound shortage of intensivists. So I directed a pulmonary care fellowship for a decade, and it was challenging. At the University of Wisconsin, we probably graduate 160 people. Maybe 35 to 40 might go into internal medicine. Of that number in that era, one would go into pulmonary and critical care. So it was a struggle to get intensivists. Maybe one might argue the proliferation of um, tele-ICU reflected the inadequacy of the numbers. So this has been a pervasive, pervasive discussion. And there's been a myriad of articles and papers that have defined what we ought to do in terms of, sorry, terms of how we would migrate through this. So everything from taking family practitioners to hospitalists, the ACGME requirements for an independent critical care fellowship are extraordinarily onerous. And many have argued that to meet the incremental demand, we have to liberalize the supply and change the approach that we use. So I try to find a picture of 695, but um, I guess that hasn't hit the threshold of 495. This is outside of Alexandria. So would you hazard a guess that if you built more lanes, does it make it better or do you get more people? Well, people have studied this kind of stuff before you spend millions of dollars building new highways. And in fact, when you build more, <coughs> you get more volume because people use it. So as we look at ICUs, this is a fundamental question. 
relate it to resource utilization. And certainly if you graph out survival and severity of illness, and you see the ideal people in the ICU are people who are gonna survive with a high level of acuity. Rarely do you see low level of acuity um, who aren't gonna survive, right? It's just kind of almost an oxymoron. But what you do see though, and this is borne out in many, many studies, that when people have a higher level of severity illness, and there's high bed availability, people who aren't destined to survive get admitted. And similarly, when you look at low levels of illness with a high likelihood of survival, when there are a lot of beds, these patients get admitted. So it raises a fundamental question about the demand elasticity for critical care throughout the country and the extent to which we effectively utilize ICU beds. And as that predicate, are we effectively training and do we need more intensivists? So if we look at the U.S. performance, and these are some of the arguments in terms of the bed numbers, U.S. is clearly an outlier in terms of the number of ICU beds and spending. One might argue that there's some improvement in mortality, but not dramatically better than some other countries. And similarly, if you compare the U.K. versus the United States in terms of the character of patients who are admitted, to intensive care units, there's a dramatic difference in the thresholds to admit, ostensibly because we have far more beds. So in Winnipeg, Manitoba, where I know the intensivists there, they have a catchment area of about 650,000 people. At the University of Wisconsin, similar catchment area. Winnipeg has, I believe, 66 ICU beds. If we take the 84 beds at the University of Wisconsin, plus the other hospital in town that has 34, plus the other hospital in town that has 32, plus the six hospitals in the region with an aggregate, you, you get the point, the number that we have would be three times that number. So it really begs the question, are our outcomes better because of that, and is it a necessity, or is it demand elastance? Certainly literature out of the VA, which probably parallels many other experiences, when we look at the number of direct admissions and the number who are directly admitted, the predicted mortality for many of these patients is actually incredibly low, but the heterogeneity in the population suggests very strongly that we probably don't use ICUs throughout the country, not necessarily to speak to here, but throughout the country very well. So this has led to Kahn and Rubenfeld speculating that we actually don't need more intensivists, that what we need to do is look at the literature, and there's a plethora of literature that has looked, a plethora might be a stronger term, but a series of reports really, when there's nursing shortages, geographic shortages, patients who can't be put in ICU, where there's a very significant curtailment in ICU availability, there doesn't appear to be any decrement or increment in mortality. Again, underscoring their point that as we look at training intensivists, uh, A, it's costly, and they've argued from a societal standpoint, it might be an unjustifiable prioritization. And they talk about intensivists not going where they're needed and so on and so forth. So I'm not necessarily sure I ascribe to this, but this is a contemporaneous debate as we look at cost quality and who provides that care that all of us ought to be involved with. They, they've argued very strongly that to improve the quality is the key part, to use advanced practitioners, embed telemedicine, create regionalization processes, embed care in the computer, be able to create care gaps, contemporaneous decision support in the EHR, which creates a degree of automaticity, the goal being to eliminate things that actually aren't helping, to delegate things to non-physicians that don't need to be done by physicians, automate whenever possible, innovate everything, and then ultimately activate your patients so that they become a meaningful part of all this as well. So the impact on non-physicians, I won't go this in great detail, but I think there's an evolving literature that clearly looks at outcome data that would suggest that in the context of the availability that we actually are gonna maintain outcomes by having teams that are both the medical resident, attensivists, and then in situations where you don't have attending staff with house staff and trainees that advanced practitioners actually have been able to, have been shown to prove that the outcomes are, there's equipoise. So ultimately, if we take the personnel issues at a doc and a nurse level aside, we look at cost cutting. I mean, there's good reason why Health Affairs in 2009 devoted an entire issue to 
sort of euphemistically bending the cost curve. Two years later, it obviously didn't work because there is a new urgency. Well, the urgency's been there forever. It's just the attention that was paid to that. So being from New Jersey, um, Yogi Bear was my philosophic icon, and he would tell you in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice. Well, in practice, there's a big difference between theory and practice. So there's a lot of lofty ideas about how to fix healthcare and how to change what we do. And very similar to the AA gradient, which serves as a, um, as a surrogate for the efficacy of lung function, there's an RR gradient. So there's no shortage of healthcare systems who have a very high RR gradient where the rhetoric dwarfs the reality and it's important to recognize that because you don't want to embrace things that aren't evidence-based or proven. And clearly, there's a whole industry that's been spawned doing consultative engagement on how to make things better sometimes. Well, there are things you probably shouldn't do. And the Harvard Business Review, a fairly authoritative uh, group of folks, Kaplan and Haas particularly, would say that these are things you probably shouldn't do. So in a simple way, if we look at dialysis, so it's infinitely better for patients and far less costly to start with a fistula than it is with a catheter. The vast majority of dialysis today throughout the country isn't started with a fistula, it's started with a catheter. So if you would have physicians maybe spend a little bit more time speaking to the patient actually having that discussion instead of seeing one patient every 11 minutes but seeing one patient every 20 minutes or whatever allocated time is appropriate, end game is the system would probably save collectively. So you can envision were we to embark on that with advanced illness and end of life discussions and do maybe what Gunderson has done in Wisconsin in terms of having those discussions and ensuring that we do what patients want. Certainly Barnado's work and a series of others at a UPMC would suggest that a lot of times, a substantial number of times, we put patients through things they would never want to have done were they to have had the opportunity to actually have that discussion. So there's a lot that can be done. Certainly choosing wisely has unfolded recently. I don't know, have you embraced choosing wisely? Every department have all five things and implement every one of them? There's a lot of controversy with that, right? You could look and say that, well, everybody picks somebody else's thing. They all picked imaging studies. Certain surgical groups didn't pick any of the surgeries, despite the fact that there's good data that some of the surgeries probably add nothing, right? So a lot of contentiousness, but they're all parts of the process. And some of the fundamental questions are, why hasn't this sort of intuitive approach actually happened? And again, in the interest of time, I won't go through in great detail, but Insurance companies in their back offices, large employers don't want to forego what they might give employees. Legislators are loath to act. Hospital administrators historically have looked at discharges, right? Fee for service, the more discharges, the more your bottom line improves. Again, academic health centers with the dual, the triad mission of teaching and education sometimes get in the way of inefficiencies and a series of other things. But from a cost standpoint, why do these clinical improvements fail to deliver? And I think the argument here, which I don't think is a valid argument, but I present it in the context of really you know, appreciate the contentiousness of the discussion. This argument has been made multiple times that you can do all these quality things you want, but the reality is hospital costs are fixed. That means things that aren't related to patient volume. So the lights, all your overhead, personnel costs. If you got 1,000 people or 900 people, your fixed costs are the same. And when you do quality things and increase throughput, get people through the hospital, all it effectively does is backfill beds that people could bill for. So it doesn't really add to the overall cost issues. So I would argue that's not true. And I think Intermountain is living proof. And anybody that's followed <coughs> the literature related to Intermountain, I mean, they rigidly um, adhere to this idea that the best way to reduce costs is improve quality. So a focus on re-engineering, minimizing the cost, eliminating waste. And I think they're a poster child where there's not a rhetoric reality. And there are models out there in the literature. And again, if we suggest that what we should practice is evidence-based administrative medicine, there are multiple illustrative examples of how to do that. So how might we slice through this Gordian knot? Well, I think one of the best messages and take-home points we could use would be 
William Mayo's address to the Rush graduating class in 1910. And I think most of us remember this, the best interest of the patient's the only interest, so I would punctuate every administrative meeting, and this sort of diffuses a lot of the other issues, and it gets to the core of what we're here to do. It's what resonates with all of us that do clinical medicine. But what really wasn't appreciated was the remainder of his quote, that the sick can have the benefit of a union of forces and it's necessary to develop medicine as a cooperative science. So medicine really is a team sport. It's a contact sport played by teams, but the teams and the mission and end game is what we ought to be mostly concerned with. So I'll just finish briefly in the last couple of minutes uh, looking at waste. I think we have two options. We either accept what we do at the level of performance that we have and realize that that inevitably will lead to rationing, if not already, or we can re-engineer the processes that we have. And you can see the substantial amount of trajectories that occur, and the Institute of Medicine has studied this, and there's a whole series of recommendations. Again, I'm trying to portray a 30,000-foot view, but these are staggering, staggering amounts of waste. So I think none of us would run our home budget with this amount of waste enormous. We obviously have more control over unnecessary service and delivered services. Administration ought not be immune. Pricing structure will probably equilibrate based on market, but there's a series of other things. So I was very fortunate to have a series of industrial systems engineers uh, at the re-engineering center that I ran that actually employed engineering, systems engineering concepts to medicine. And I think as we look going forward, these are the two original study unhappy surgeons who actually were part of this video. This is from 1920. So this is Gilbert's original work. So he looked at operating rooms, found that the surgeon would have to go to the table, pick the instruments, go back, did a time motion study, much like he did with bricklayers, and was able to actually define a whole different innovative approach to how that care could be rendered. So hence, he coined the surgical caddy, which became the scrub nurse, decreased the operating time by 60%. So that was 1920, but I would argue that using qualitative, quantitative analytics, modeling, simulation, all the things that have effectively revolutionized American industry are things that we ought to embrace in the care of patients and do it with the end game of improving patient care. So as a PG-32, I'm old enough, 33 now, to remember Standard Oils. Anybody else remember Standard Oil? Anybody know why? This is the forerunner. It went from Standard Oil to XO, SO to Exxon. Why'd they call it Standard Oil? Well, oil was actually discovered in western Pennsylvania. Cleveland was the oil capital of the world. And Rockefeller's group actually had a poor process, very ineffective, inefficient process to distill kerosene hired an English chemist named Andrews, standardized the process, and actually the rest is history. So whether you use Six Sigma, Lean, whatever methodology you use, one of the core tenets is standardization, mitigating unwarranted variability. There's clearly room for warranted variability, but it's creating a reliable system. So I'll close with that. Uh, hopefully this was the 30,000 foot view that would be a prelude to other discussions about efficiency and things embedded in critical care. I'd be happy to take any questions. Questions, anyone? Wood, that uh, my head is about to explode. So many ideas and so many questions that I, I have. Um, uh, I don't know if any of you want to go first. I, if not, I have a couple. Yeah, Carl? So the, the question is uh, the relative balance in terms of the uh, reimbursement <clears throat> that would occur that's fairly uniform against the background of cases that are not as complex versus very complex, and is there a, a difference between the two and where the priorities might reside? Is that a fair way to summarize it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, well, I, again, I, I think if you, you take the Mayo adage, uh, the best interest of the patient's the only interest, that that has as its correlate the derivative that we do the right thing for the patient at any level. And not to imply that uh, that question would suggest otherwise, but 
I think ultimately what we're charged with doing is taking care of patients. So if in the region, if it's unambiguously clear that a small referral hospital can't actually provide the care, then that's the nature of a tertiary quaternary center. If on the other hand, there are potential components where that patient realistically could have care provided. So University of Wisconsin, I ran the transfer center for the time I was there. And we would go through a very involved attending to attending level discussion and try and define that. Uh, end game is we would accept a lot of patients, but we would do it with the caveat of a reciprocity agreement so that if we did the tertiary quaternary thing, uh, the referring hospital would take them back. Easier said than done, uh, splitting the Medicare and how your carrier you know, looks at the reimbursement. But ultimately, I think at the clinician level, uh, it's most important that we answer the needs of the patient. And many times when a smaller or even modest sized referring hospital says they're calling to transfer a patient, um, the reality is by virtue of them saying that, they probably can't do it. And if they don't believe they can do it, they probably aren't gonna do a good job. So I know I, I distilled it down, but I can fully appreciate um, potential implications if we were on the receiving end of every single case um, in a global budget, there's a big disincentive to accept more and more volume. So ultimately, I think at the state level, particularly for the large tertiary quaternary hospitals, one would have to have some adjudication mechanism to account for the severity, the complexity, because they're not all the same. So I don't know if I have the right answer, but that's kind of at least how I think about it. Any comments on uh, the role? I mean, you've alluded to it a little bit about the need for physician, particularly critical care physician participation in the changing the process of care and sort of the leadership at, um, with those uh, implementing and creating those uh, decisions. Um, now, how my concern is, um, you know, how much focus is on sort of the hospital administrators and um, and how much like, my concern if we're not part of that process that the cuts will just continue to be passed down to the uh, people at the bedside, you know, while bureaucracy profit is maintained, you know, at the expense of the people wow, who are there, getting burned a out. Series of loaded questions. Yes. <laughs> and, um, so anyway, that's uh, how do we prevent that except be, by being involved? I think, I mean, if you would ask me again 32 years ago when I was an intern, would I have ever in a million years even remotely in my wildest hallucination ever thought I would know anything about cost quality structures or reimbursement? I, you're out of your mind. I mean, I was focused on oxygen transport and taking care of critically ill people. I was a cardiovascular physiologist, so I taught courses in. And what became really readily apparent, I, I think, and it's not exclusionary, and I'm not in any way suggesting one exclude administration or exclude physicians, but dyad partnering between physicians and administrators is just an extraordinarily useful thing. So in the world I lived in previously, um, you know, I essentially had oversight uh, for a budget of $1.2 billion. Not me myself, but it was done in conjunction with administrative partner. So I made no decisions without him, and he made no decisions without me. We were tethered at the hip. And so whether it was food services, parking, or whether we fund a uh, $380 million critical care tower, it's joint decisions because the capacity of people that are MBA trained, business, CFO, finance, to add dimensions that even though many physicians have a you know, business background now, the reality is, for people that are trained in it, do it, do it every day, there's levels of granular understanding they have. Physicians never will, I think. And at the other side, because that we are clinicians, we're at the bedside and we understand what impacts care, I think it's it's absolutely pivotal that physicians and administrators, and you could add, you know, it doesn't have to be physicians particularly, but clinicians, most importantly, partner with their administrative counterpart and dyad responsibility. Um, to me, it's where it was, we said, when I was at Wisconsin, when I ran critical care there, uh, you know, I and the nurse manager, it was a joint shared responsibility. I didn't make unilateral decisions without her for a singular unit, nor as the CMO in, in the Geisinger system would I make unilateral decisions. So I think it's a shared partnership, but presentations like this, what I would say are administrative grand rounds to create the heightened sense of awareness of what's unfolding at a regulatory, at a administrative, at a business, at an insurance level, 
because it has gotten to the point where it will impact what we do clinically. And it's just imperative that not everybody would want to do that, fully understand, but all of us ought to have some level of appreciation of what it is, and then ultimately we need to have physicians engaged in the process because that to me is an invaluable thing to have physicians who've been at the bedside <clears throat> understand the patient relationships and families assist in doing the right thing for patients. Not to imply administrators can't do it. I mean, the ministries I work with were extraordinary in many respects. Uh, they weren't clinicians though. So there is just like we aren't CFOs, they aren't physicians. It's the compilation of that skill set that gives the end game to then serve the purposes of the mission. Yeah, well, you'll be back. <laughs> we need more to talk about. Thank you. Thank you.